morning, everyone, and happy Resurrection Day. Happy Easter. Let's read one of the gospel accounts that uh, tells us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and I'm, I'm just going to read that. This isn't going to be the topic of our Bible study this morning, but it's a good place to start. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, and by the way, that's Sunday, um, and I'm thankful for Easter. It's a good thing that we have this, this tradition when we uh, remember the Lord's resurrection one day a year, but uh, the reason why the church, the Christian church, meets on the first day of the week is because all four gospel writers are careful to point out that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So technically, every Sunday for Christians is Resurrection Day. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And eventually Jesus, in uh, verses 18 through the end, is going to give to his disciples the great commission. So that's from Matthew's perspective, the uh, account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Mark, Luke, and John also record in di different words, but the same event. And then the Apostle Paul, even though he wasn't there, uh, he also witnessed Jesus raised from the dead. And uh, he tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the, by the way, the way the Jews counted time, Friday, Good Friday, the day of Jesus' death was day one. And so Saturday's day two. The first day of the week is the third day. And then, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has become a core doctrine of the Christian church, and not over the years, but right away, from the get-go, uh, this is what gave rise to the Christian church in the first place, and this is what Christians confessed. And then over the years, the Apostles' Creed developed, in which Christians confess, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, which means, by the way, that he suffered the pangs of hell in dying for our sins in our place. Doesn't mean that literally he went into hell itself. The third day he rose again from the dead. And then the Apostles' Creed goes on. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's right in the middle of 
the core of the Christian message. It's right in the middle of what Christianity, <clears throat> excuse me, is all about. But rather than just talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead um, doctrinally or abstractly, even historically, even though that's what we're going to start off doing, I want to get personal with you. And I want to make sure that it's clear why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important to you? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with you? How does it apply to you? And so that's why the theme of our study this morning is Christ's resurrection and you. So when we look at the resurrection of Jesus that way from the Bible, um, the first thing that we're going to consider is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's proof to you that Christianity is true. This is how you can know that Christianity is the real thing. This is God's way of definitively proving to you that the message of Jesus Christ, his coming into the world, his righteous life, his death on the cross as a substitute for sinners who believe in his resurrection from the dead and then his future coming. God's proof to you is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus himself said on a number of occasions to his disciples, things like what Mark records for us in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So the resurrection is not followers of Jesus' attempt to put the best spin on the death of Jesus. It was not their attempt to take a bad thing and try to present it as a good thing. Instead, this is what Jesus was saying all along, especially towards the end. This is what he was preparing his disciples for. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed, but I'm also going to rise again. And here's how we know that Jesus Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead almost 2,000 years ago. So um, this is what resonates with me. This is what has lodged in my own mind. It's not, I'm going to make it short, but I want to share this with you. Um, I, I believe, and there are plenty of other scholars who believe as well, uh, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a very well-attested event of ancient history, of, of antiquity. In fact, it might be the most attested event in, in antiquity. This is not something that we believe like people choose to believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or what have you. It's, it's a historical event. And so the first... Uh, uh, link in this chain of proof is that hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. I quoted from 1 Corinthians 15. Let, let's look there briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you know that even liberal scholars, uh, skeptical scholars who, who teach in secular universities they don't believe in the message of Christianity. Over the decades, even they are having to say now, you know what? Passages like this that we're going to look at, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, they have their roots in the earliest days of Christianity, right after the resurrection, 
And like wildfire, the belief spread that Jesus rose from the dead, that there were these eyewitnesses. At least the early Christians were convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. That is clear from history. So we look in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. Apostle Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And by the way, if we go by the way that the gospel writers um, described a crowd's present during the, the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, where they count the men, but really there's women and children present as well, then if we apply that same logic to Paul's statement here that he was seen alive by over 500 brethren at once, it could be thousands of Christians, of whom the greater part remain to the present. And this is one of the statements that Paul makes that has grabbed the attention of unbelieving skeptical scholars. What nerve for someone who's perpetrating a lie, a myth, fake news, to say this is absolutely what happened. There's all kinds of eyewitnesses, 500 brethren, many of them are alive today. What nerve if it wasn't actually true? But it was true. And Paul goes on, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, the brother of the Lord, then by, the, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So among those eyewitnesses uh, were Matthew, whose account that we already read, John, then there's Mark and Luke, who weren't eyewitnesses of the actual resurrection, but they talked with eyewitnesses. And so you have these four Gospels that record the same momentous event, two of them written by eyewitnesses, two of them written basically by journalists and historians of the time, so that you have this fourfold historical account of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to dismiss what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul say about their experience witnessing the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to dismiss that is purely arbitrary and bias. And you might as well dismiss all other writings of history from antiquity. But that's the first chain, uh, a link in this chain, eyewitnesses. And then number two, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would rise from the dead. And I'm not going to go over the, these passages that are mentioned there. Um, there is a link in your bulletin to an article that I, that I highly recommend put out by uh, the Master's Seminary. And they go through these particular passages, Psalm 1610, Psalm 22, verses 22 through 31, Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. They go through uh, all of those passages in detail to show that they all anticipate the resurrection of the Messiah. And then there's more passages that they refer to as well to show that uh, there's an allusion even to the third day so that when Paul says he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, Paul was not reading into the Old Testament something that wasn't already there. So Jesus rose from the dead because the Old Testament said this is exactly what was going to happen. This is what Messiah would do. Then the third Link in the chain is that the lives of Peter, James, and Paul were radically transformed. More than them, but Peter, James, and Paul 
they had their lives turned upside down and the turning point was the resurrection of Jesus. So you take Paul, for example. Before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And as Saul of Tarsus, he hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. He hated Christianity. That's why he persecuted Christians even unto death. He tr tried to destroy the church. James, one of Jesus' siblings, James thought that Jesus had lost his mind. But after the resurrection, James believed that his brother, according to the flesh, was the Lord Jesus Christ, James 1.1. And then Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times the night before Christ's crucifixion. But after the resurrection, Peter became the rock of the church and the preacher whose powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost led to 3,000 souls being saved. And on and on and on. How do you explain Peter, James, Saul of Tarsus? Well, they explain themselves by saying, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and we're eyewitnesses. And then finally, number four, the fourth link in this chain, Jesus is still loved and believed in today. Many of us in this room know from personal experience what Peter meant when he said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1.8. Every single Christian here today can attest to this. We know, we love, we are following a Savior who is alive. We've not seen him bodily. We don't have to. We commune with him. We have a relationship with him. We pray to him. He answers our prayers. He speaks through us through his word and his spirit. We know that Jesus is alive. New Testament scholar Henry Morris put it this way. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. And it is. All right, so that's the first thing this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's proof to you that Christianity is true. You have, you have no excuse to reject it. It is true. If you are not a Christian, it's because you're choosing to not be a Christian. You're holding on to sin. You don't want to follow Jesus. But don't say there's no proof. Don't say, I need more information. God has given so much revelation and truth to leave all without excuse. But secondly, it's God's invitation to you to come to him through Christ. We were in 1 Corinthians, if you look forward in your New Testament to the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Listen to what the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant, our great high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And you say, well, the where's the resurrection? I don't see the resurrection. But you'll notice that Jesus 
is alive in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus was dead. Jesus tasted death for everyone. But Jesus is no longer dead. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is alive. But here's what I want you to notice. He's able to save to the uttermost. That is completely at all times those who come to God through him. There's nothing that is left out. There's nothing that is lacking in terms of Jesus's ability to save those who draw near to God through him. And this suggests why the resurrection was so important, by the way, because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if Jesus died and that was it, number one, there would be no Christianity. There'd be no apostles following him. There'd be no gospel. There'd be no good news. But number two, we could never be assured that believing in Jesus is enough for our salvation because he's dead. How do we know how much of our sins Jesus died for? How, how would we know how much of our salvation Jesus is able to secure if he stayed dead? Did Jesus die for 10% of our sins or 50% or 95% and the rest is up to us because after all he's dead? And we know that that's ridiculous Jesus died a sin-atoning, angry God-propitiating death on account of our sins that God has accepted as payment in full for all of our sins. And how do we know that? Because God raised him from the dead. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, but he was raised again for our justification. Therefore, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And by the way, notice the exclusivity of that verse. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him and no one else. Jesus does not save to the uttermost those who rely on their own goodness and their own self-righteousness. Jesus does not save to the uttermost those who are unrepentant in their sin, those who are unrepentant in their idolatry, those who believe in false gods and false saviors like Buddha, like Allah, like Joseph Smith or whoever else. No, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those and only those who draw near to God through him. This is why leading up to this moment, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then you'll notice that verse concludes with the words, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He continues to live, and he continues to play the role, fulfill the office of great high priest. Certainly Jesus did that when he offered up the ultimate sacrifice of himself on Calvary's cross. But he continues to do that even now. It's not that he continues to die. It's not that he dies often. The writer of the book of Hebrews is careful to point out that Jesus died once for all 
to save for eternity those who are being sanctified. But he always lives to make intercession for them in the sense that he always intercedes in our behalf. And it's mysterious to imagine exactly what that looks like, but it's something like Jesus before the throne room in God appearing there in our behalf and praying for us, interceding for us. Father, I died for that one. Father, I know that that one continues to say filthy words and to lie and to treat her husband bad or his wife bad or to disobey his parents or whatever the case may be. I know that this one is not perfect, but he or she is being perfected. And Lord, Father, I shed my blood for that lamb, for that sinner. Something like that. He always lives to make intercession for them. What a great encouragement for sinners to come to Christ. Christ invites you to come to God through him. That means there's no preconditions. There's no going to the minor leagues first. There's no preparing yourself to come to Christ. It means in your sinfulness, in your brokenness, you come. And you confess, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And the promise of the Bible is that everyone who comes to the Lord in that way, confessing their unworthiness, confessing their sin, believing, trusting in Jesus Christ, the guarantee of Scripture is you will be saved. Jesus himself said, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means turn away. It's an amazing promise, an amazing invitation. And it's all based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is still alive, who always lives to make intercession for us. Number three. Christ's resurrection is God's provision for you to live a new life in Christ. It's God's provision for you to live a new life in Christ. And let me introduce this point this way. Lots of people have the mistaken understanding that being a Christian means that you ask Jesus into you, your heart, you respond during an event or whatever, you pray a prayer, and based on that, you're good, you're saved, you're going to heaven, you should never doubt. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a believer, a Christian, is someone who comes to Christ by faith initially and then continues in Christ by faith eternally. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. Someone who doesn't just pray to Jesus once, but goes on living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a Christian. And the encouraging thing is that God gives us the power to be a Christian. He gives us the power to follow Christ as, as a disciple. And it's actually the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he 
said that his prayer for the Ephesians is that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Think about that. That took a lot of power to raise Jesus from the dead. There's a dead man who didn't just die for a few minutes and he was resuscitated. He was so dead that he was dead for three days. He was buried in a tomb. And from that state of absolute deadness, Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God. And Paul says that that power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is directed toward us who believe. That's awesome. That great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, he directs toward us. And the first manifestation of that is when we're first saved, when we're born again. That's how we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive in Christ. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. That's the power of God, but it doesn't stop there because this prayer is regarding believers, and it's in the present ongoing tense. There is this ongoing power from God who raised Jesus from the dead, this ongoing power, this great might, that is continually at work toward believers. And it's that power, it's that might, that enables us to live the Christian life. We were in Hebrews. Look forward James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Listen to how Peter put this. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, His divine power. We just read about that divine power. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Wow, God, I thought that you did your part and I do my part. I thought that in the Christian life, you offer up 95% of the power and I offer up 5% of the power. Nope. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Every single thing. Nothing is missing. Nothing we have to go searching for. It's all in God. Notice that it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We're not becoming God, but we're becoming like God. God is holy. We're called to be holy. It's by God's divine power that we do actually become holy. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Peter continues, make every effort. So the fact that God supplies the power doesn't mean that we're passive. It means we just don't have the power. God supplies the power. We supply the obedience, as it were. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Well, why is this so important, Peter? So what? What if I don't care about these things? He 
continues, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's the thing about being a Christian. You're never actually perfect or sinless in this life, but we are increasing. The Christian life is a, li a life of growth. It's a life of increase. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. That's like me. I'm so nearsighted, I'm, I'm practically blind. Now wait for my eyes to adjust. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now listen to verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, listen to his language, to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Have you ever wondered to yourself, am I elect? Has God chosen me for salvation? since before the foundation of the world? Has God called me, not just outwardly, like he's now calling all men everywhere to repentance, but has the Holy Spirit powerfully and effectively called me to himself? Have you ever wondered that? Peter says, well, here's how you can know. Is God's divine power at work in your life? Is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, is that power at work in your life? Can you say, for me, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I know that our experiences are, are different. There's no cookie-cutter Christian experience. But can you look at your life and see the power of the resurrection of Jesus? Not in perfection, but in direction. Not in perfection, but in an increasing measure. Is God's divine power at work in you so that when you sin, you feel bad about it? You're not happy about it. You actually confess that sin to the Lord. And you trust his promise that whoever confesses his sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you say, God, help me. Give me the power. Give me the ability to whatever. Stop swearing. Stop looking with lust. Help me to live with my wife in an understanding way. Help me to uh, be subject to my husband as to the Lord, even though I disagree with him so many times. Help me to love the brethren. Help me to love God's house. Help me to stop lying. Help me to stop stealing. Help me to be a better employee, whatever. You know, all these things are mentioned in the New Testament, don't you? Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Baptism is a picture of burial. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... There's his resurrection. Even so, Paul says, we also should walk in newness of life. That's the connection with the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us there's more to being a Christian than just being forgiven. A Christian is someone whose life is being transformed by the power of God, resurrection power. So it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? If there is no resurrection power in your life, maybe you need to go back to the cross. Maybe you need to 
Go back to the basics and confess your hypocrisy to the Lord. Whatever. There's that. But then by way of encouragement, God does not require anything from us that he doesn't grant us by his grace. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God is good. Number four, Christ's resurrection and you. It's God's warning to you of impending judgment. It's God's warning to you of impending judgment. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul preached the gospel on Mars Hill to this group of Athenian Greek philosophers, at the end of his message, he said, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked Imagine how appalling that was. Here are these Athenian philosophers, the, the smartest guys in the city. At least that's what they thought. And Paul says, these times of ignorance God overlooked. God is not impressed with mere human learning and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's interesting that he ends his evangelistic message not with an altar call, because there are none in the New Testament, Lots of invitations to believe in Jesus, no altar calls. But he ends the message with a message of judgment. And then listen to the end of verse 31. So he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Paul says... God raised Jesus from the dead. That is God's assurance that Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. So here's the thing. There is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. You, you can't think to yourself, well, I know that the evidence is overwhelming and the message is so compelling, but I'm so busy. I've got things I want to do, places I want to go, people I want to see, I want to see, a career I want to pursue. And I'm not saying those things by themselves are bad, but if anything keeps you from coming to Jesus, it's the worst thing in the world the biggest hindrance imaginable because there's no neutral ground. You either take Jesus as your Lord and Savior as he's offered to you in the gospel or you will face him as your judge. That's what the Bible says. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to unbelievers. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's written to believers. And take heart, that doesn't mean that our salvation is hanging in the balance. He goes on to clarify that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. If you're saved, if you believe in Jesus Christ from the heart, if Jesus is in you and you are in him, you're saved. You're justified. There is therefore now no condemnation to you. Still, forgiven, saved, justified sinners will one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to give an account of our stewardship of our faithfulness to the Lord. 
And we know that because God raised Jesus from the dead. Finally and fifthly, Christ's resurrection is God's promise to you of eternal joy. It's God's promise to you of eternal joy. I'm, I'm going to read to you two of the most encouraging, hope-filled passages in the whole Bible. And I want you to notice that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of all that is promised in these two passages. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to this encouragement and hope. Starting in verse 50. You should read the whole thing. Read chapter 15 this afternoon. That's your homework assignment. We go by the honor system. First, first Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this on the foundation of what goes before when Paul discusses the resurrection. This encouragement, this hope that belongs to every single believer without exception. It's all based on the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. Then look in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 31. The Apostle Paul writes here, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And isn't that encouraging? Sometimes don't you feel like the whole world is against you? Do you ever feel like no matter what you do on a particular day, it seems like everything is going wrong? And you have this relationship at work, and everyone's mad at you at work, and then you go home, and everyone's upset at you at, at home, and you just think, ah, everyone's against me. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is inter interceding for us? You hear that? Right in the middle of all of this hope and encouragement is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow! I hope your soul says amen. All of this, all of this, anchored solidly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, you have a great future ahead of you. I say that not as a prophet, but as a believer in the Bible. And when I say that, I'm not saying your life is going to be easy and there's no trials awaiting you. I'm pretty confident your life won't be easy and that trials do, in fact, await you. But still, I am so confident you have a great future. God is going to use all of the pain and disappointments and trials and tribulations in this life to mold you and shape you, to conform you into the image of his son. And then at the end of all of it, you're going to enter into the joy of your Lord. And you're going to be rewarded and blessed in ways that you can't even imagine now. No eye has seen, no mind has comprehended what the Lord has in store for those who love him. You have a great future. And the most important thing about that future is that there's absolutely nothing that will able, be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. And God's historical proof to you is that he raised Jesus from the dead. Because of that, your future is secure. Because of that, your hope is firm. Because of that, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will ultimately be saved on the day of the Lord.